Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. A very warm welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science, to those joining online and to those here present at the Old Theatre. I am Professor Susanna Morato. I am Vice President and Pro Vice Chancellor for Research here at the LSE. And I'm delighted to be here this evening and to be joined by students, faculty, staff, alumni, supporters, friends and partners of LSE for tonight's very special celebration. This evening, before we listen to Professor Raghuram Rajan's lecture, we will award him an honorary doctorate to recognize and celebrate his genuinely outstanding contributions to social science and society. The awarding of an LSE honorary doctorate allows us to recognize extraordinary distinction and accomplishment in an area of scholarship or public activity in line with our guiding principles and vision, which is to be a community of people and ideas founded to know the causes of things for the betterment of society. Professor Raghu Rajan, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to that global community. But now I am delighted to introduce Professor Lord Nicholas Stern, who will offer the traditional oration. Raghu Rajan is a scholar of extraordinary distinction in terms of our usual criteria, outstanding articles in the leading academic journals. He also writes books, which are both a pleasure to read and accessible to general audience. For example, Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists with Louis G. Zangales in 2003 and Fault Lines, How Hidden Fractures Still Threaten the World Economy in 2010. And there are more. Further, both the articles and the books reframe and change our understanding of some of the great issues of our time including the role that inequality and financial deregulation can play in creating economic and financial instability and potentially undermine economic growth. Raghu has served the international community with great skill, wisdom and insight as Chief Economist at the IMF from October 2003 to December 2006. At 40 years old, he was the youngest person to hold that position. Very sadly for me, he arrived at the IMF in the same week that I left my position as Chief Economist of the World Bank. I missed my uh, regular coffees with the opposite number, and that uh, was my loss. It was during this time at the IMF that he warned of the growing risks in the financial system at the Federal Reserve Board Conference at Jackson Hole in 2005, three years before the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the onset of the global financial crisis. He not only had the foresight and analytical skills to see the potential troubles ahead, he also had the personal courage to stand up when very few were doing so. From 2012 to 2016, he served his country, first as Chief Economic Advisor to the Government of India, and then as Governor of the Central Bank, the Reserve Bank of India. He was held in great respect in both positions, his independence of thought, his understanding of economic development and the role of public policy, and his wisdom and ability to take decisions. The stock market and rupee both rose on the announcement of his appointment as RBI governor. But he was far from a governor only for the financial markets. 
It was the economic development of India and tackling poverty that mattered to him first and foremost. He is now the Catherine Dusak Miller Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School, where he began his professorial career after he earned his doctorate at MIT in 1991. A scholar, a writer, a wise, fearless and independent public servant, both at home and internationally. That, we hope, is a clear example of what LSE means when we speak of understanding the causes of things and working for the betterment of society. Raghu has shown on a huge scale the qualities and contributions that matter most to the LSE. Let me end on Raghu more personally. He grew up and was educated mainly in India, drawing deep inspiration from that special country and his father's international postings gave him worldly experience at a young age. If you're not already in awe of Raghu, please note that he runs half marathons and is a serious squash player. He is also, very importantly, tremendous fun to be with and a fine, humble and generous human being. Raghu, you honour us by accepting this honorary degree. Thank you. Well, uh, friends, both here and online, thank you very much for this honor, as well as the coming privilege of giving the first in the Goodhart Lectures. Any academic influence I've had certainly would not have been possible without all my friends around the world, but especially the superb colleagues that I've had and the incredible learning environment at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Among my many co-authors, let me acknowledge some who I've learned so much from over the years. Viral Acharya, who's also part of what I'm going to speak about today. Douglas Diamond, who won this year's Nobel Prize. Stuart Myers, Randall Krosner, Mitch Peterson, Rodney Ramcharan, Henri Cervez, and Luigi Singales. They're quite the United Nations, but as a bonus, they're all very good friends. Now, my wife, Radhika Puri, has been a constant support and a great critic, literally, because she reads and offers comments on all my work, except the most boring technical stuff. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if it weren't for her, and I mean that truly. I can't say the same for my children, Tara and Akhil, without whose constant attention I would have been far more productive. <laughs> but they're the pride of our lives, and I'm glad they took me away from work. Finally, my parents gave me a happy, secure home, a love of reading, and whatever values I have. Far too few children get any of that, and I'm eternally grateful for being blessed. Thank you once again for this great honor. Thank you. So, Raghu, welcome. Welcome to the LSE family. You honor us by joining us. That's the end of the formal honorary degree part of the process. Now we have the uh, intellectual treat, which is a lecture from Raghu. I'm Nick Stern. I'm Professor of Economics uh, here at the London School of Economics. 
I want to welcome all our uh, online participants and uh, we look forward very much to your questions along with questions from those in the uh, audience. So the lecture today is the lecture in honour of the wonderful Charles Goodhart, a friend of many, many years. It is also, and we're very grateful for this, the second lecture in the PGIM series, and we thank PGIM very much for their support. Now, just a quick word or two about Charles, because it is in honour of Charles. Charles, if you just wave a little bit so people can see. Uh, <laughs> that was a small, small wave from Charles in the front row. Um, Charles and I arrived at the LSC roughly at the same time in the mid-1980s, and he'd served a long period and very distinguished period in the Bank of England. He's done so many things in the world, I haven't got the time, and I won't read out a full list. And I've got quite a full list here, but it's not exhaustive, but I won't go through it all. But he was, um, played a really tremendous role in helping overcome financial crisis in Hong Kong in the early uh, 1980s. And he was, when the uh, Monetary Policy uh, Committee was formed in the Bank of England, he was one of the first uh, people, indeed in the first cohort, I think, of uh, outside uh, appointments to uh, that Monetary Policy Committee. Um, he's famous for his writing, but he's also famous for his sense of humour. And uh, he is the author of Goodhart's Law, which states that any observed statistical regularity will tend to collapse once pressure is placed upon it for control purposes. He also constantly reminds us of Murphy's Law, which is very important in monetary policy, which is if something can go wrong, it will. And that encapsulates the universal nature of ineptitude, which Charles can spot a mile off. This is the Charles Goodhart Lecture, and it's Rajan Raghu, our good friend, and now with a PhD from the London School of Economics. Um, <laughs> he did get a PhD earlier from MIT in 1991, but we'll put that to one side for today. <laughs> His research interests, as you will know, banking, corporate finance, and economic development, and I stress that it's not just banking and corporate finance, it's for a purpose. As they say, uh, as you know, Raghu in India, matlab kya hai? This is the purpose, it's economic development, and sustainable economic development, I would underline. You have won so many prizes, I've got a list of some of them here, which uh, I won't go through, but you were president of the American Finance Association and recipient of the inaugural Fishblacker Prize of that association. You do advice to private sector and still continue very much as in public service with advice to the uh, IMF as member of their economic advisory panel and to Federal Reserve Bank of uh, New York. So the public service continues. Now, what we're going to hear about today is central bank balance sheet expansion and financial stability. Why less can be more? Uh, this is something which uh, Raghu has uh, thought about and tried to explain to the world uh, over recent uh, months and years. And it's something of enormous importance right now and we're privileged, Raghu, to have your views and your thoughts on that. Just before you stand up, I will say in this modern era that for Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's events is at LSE UK Economy. This event will be recorded and we hope it will be available in some shape or form as a podcast and a video. Raghu, over to you and thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Nick. It's a privilege to get not just one introduction, but two introductions from you in an evening. It is an honor to be asked to deliver the second in the Charles Goodhart Lectures. Um, I have known Charles for over 30 years now and have benefited enormously from his writings and his insights. His 1989 book, Money, Information and Uncertainty, was a key source as I wrote my thesis. He's always been very generous with his time, most uh, recently offering comments on the work I will present today. And I'm sure, like me, many generations of academics have benefited from his insights. Now, Nick told us a little bit about Charles's work. Uh, of course, many of you have read the influential recent book with Manoj Pradhan. But as I read about Charles from that fount of information, Wikipedia, in preparation for this lecture, I learned he served as an army officer during the Suez Crisis and in Hungary during the Hungarian Revolution, was paired in tutorials with Jim Mirrlees at Cambridge, and started the financial markets group at the LSE with Mervyn King. These are just a few tidbits I picked up and certainly indicate what a rich and influential life he's led so far. Charles, as uh, Nick said, is uh, popularly associated with Goodhart's Law. Let me repeat it because I'm going to take off from it in my talk today. Whenever a government seeks to rely on a previously observed statistical regularity for control purposes, that regularity will collapse. I'm going to take off on it, basically saying that part of the problem is there are, uh, in some sense, many unintended consequences of policy, primarily that the real world reacts. We are not acting in a vacuum or with atoms which behave according to some pre-given law. Uh, there is a reaction function to whatever policy is implemented. And uh, we have to walk that through. And I'm going to talk about central bank policy in uh, recent times, perhaps taking off on the second part of what Nick said, Murphy's Law, that uh, a lot of stuff that can go wrong will actually go wrong when you do new stuff. Now, the context for this is that we had very low inflation after the global financial crisis. Central banks were not achieving their inflation target. Uh, US PCE inflation averaged about 1.4% between 2012 and 2020. And there's a lot of pressure on the central banks of the following kind. If you aren't achieving your inflation target, there must be some stimulus you can apply to the economy that you're not doing. So go ahead and stimulate. And uh, you know, to some extent, central banks didn't reject that responsibility. We were at the zero low bound. They had to find innovative ways of easing monetary policy. And to some extent, uh, one can discern a hint of smugness in their complaint that fiscal policy and reforms were not working and monetary policy was the only game in town. So they embarked on as aggressive uh, a set of uh, policies as they could. Given that it was already at the zero low bound, they had to be innovative. And uh, this took the form of what one calls unconventional monetary policy. I'm going to focus on one aspect. There were many aspects. There, were for, there was forward guidance, low for long, directed credit programs. There was even open mouth policy, Draghi's famous Within our mandate, the ECB will be ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro, and believe me, it will be enough. 
that was enough in some sense to restore uh, some amount of stability to the European uh, sovereign debt markets. But I want to focus on one aspect of this, which is balance sheet expansion, uh, you know, QE, quantitative easing, the process by which a central bank expands its balance sheet by buying assets from the market, typically long-term treasuries, but also uh, a variety of other assets, sometimes stocks, sometimes um, you know, mortgage-backed securities, and so on. And in the process, it issues reserves. It finances those long-term asset purchases with the issues, uh, issuance of reserves. And I'll detail that in just a second. I want to ask if this form of monetary policy had unintended consequences and what they might have been and what happens when that policy is withdrawn, when you have quantitative tightening. And I'm going to do this in the context of the, of the first phase of QE as well as the first phase of quantitative tightening, which happened, uh, I'll give you the dates in just a second, but I also want to then uh, think about what's happening more recently. What happened during the pandemic and what happened when the Fed started raising interest rates and tightening more recently, some of the financial instability that we've seen. So in some sense, the starting point is saying, look, when the Fed expands its balance sheet, when it buys longer term securities from the market and replaces them with the most liquid asset known on the planet, which is central bank reserves. They're extremely liquid. They're what you use for final settlement. Um, shouldn't this essentially flood the market with liquidity? Shouldn't the market, in a sense, be plentifully supplied and, you know, liquidity will not be a problem? It turns out, however, that you withdraw a little bit of it and the market seems very fragile. Uh, for example, after a period of quantitative tightening, even while central bank reserves were multiples of where they had been before the global financial crisis, what you saw was extremely fragile financial conditions in the market. In September 2019, you basically had a huge spike in repo rates. Um, a bunch of banks uh, stopped lending into the interbank market they holded their reserves for fear there wasn't enough liquidity in the market. Um, this has happened in, on other occasions, but in March 2020, we saw a freezing of the entire uh, market, which is when the Federal Reserve came back with enormous quantities of liquidity, did uh, essentially a huge uh, quantitative easing program and, uh, and stabilized the markets. Uh, more recently, as central banks have started tightening, as they've started withdrawing liquidity, you've seen the problem with gilts in the United Kingdom. Of course, there were other reasons why the market sort of started freezing up. But you also had uh, the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapse, uh, more re most recently the Republic, First Republic uh, collapse, uh, all of which comes from a certain uh, amount of withdrawal of liquidity, but also an accompanying increase in interest rates. So what we want to ask here is, are central bank balance sheet expansions and financial fragility related? Uh, is this something that you know, is cause and effect? And um, 
why is it the case? Why is it that supplying so much liquidity suddenly causes fragile financial conditions? And I'm going to argue that, you know, the answer lies in walking this through. What actually happens when the central bank does quantitative easing? It's not just an expansion in the central bank balance sheet. It turns out it's also an expansion in the commercial bank balance sheets. What happens is commercial banks essentially finance the central bank's balance sheet expansion by holding reserves on their asset side, but financed with a substantial amount of uninsured demand deposits on the liability side. Now, at one level, this seems fine. You know, it's one for one. You've got a very liquid asset. You've got issued a very liquid liability. But commercial banks don't stop there. They reduce their de uh, time deposits. They increase other claims on liquidity. And essentially, they consume all the liquidity the central bank has put out, and then some more. Put differently, the commercial banking system reacts to the central bank balance sheet expansion by eating up the liquidity the, the central bank provides, leaving, at some point, a fairly stretched system. When the central bank withdraws that liquidity, commercial banks don't unwind the claims they've already issued, and the system starts backing up. What I want to argue is that this certainly is what happened the last time the central bank started withdrawing liquidity, which forced it to go back into the market and provide liquidity again. So far, we haven't traced out what will happen as QT proceeds, but we can see some of the initial directions. And this time around, we have the additional problem that interest rates have moved up very, very sharply. And I'll talk about that. So that's, that's where I want to go, and that's what I want to uh, try and explain. So where did all the liquidity go? Uh, when we had this massive expansion of central bank balances. And, and the key insight is really, you want to follow the commercial bank balance sheet expansion also, is that where the illiquidity emerges? So here is a basic primer on central bank balance sheet expansion. What you have on the left-hand side is the original state. The Federal Reserve has treasury securities, reserves which are held by the banks, and cash, which is held by the general public. Those are the liabilities of the central bank. The banking sector has treasury securities, reserves of the Fed. They also have loans. Forget about them for the moment. They don't matter, that matter for the story I'm going to tell. The deposits and their capital. Okay? When the Federal Reserve purchases assets from the banks, now QE doesn't necessarily mean purchasing assets from the banks. It also means purchasing assets from the pension funds, mutual funds. I'll come to that in a second. When it purchases assets from the bank, it's a straightforward asset swap. The commercial bank gives up its treasury securities and gets reserves at the Federal Reserve in exchange. The Federal Reserve buys a treasury security and has issued reserves to the central bank, uh, to the commercial bank. So for the commercial bank, it's an asset swap, nothing on the liability side. For the Federal Reserve, it's an expansion in balance sheet. This is not how QE actually takes place when you look at the evidence. The way it takes place is different. There's a third party, which is the public. What I mean by the public is pension funds, mutual funds, the stuff outside the banking sector. Now, when the Federal Reserve buys a treasury security from the public, 
it essentially takes it away from their balance sheet. But those guys can't hold reserves. Pension funds can't hold reserves. What they can do is hold deposits in the banking system. So they take the money the Federal Reserve gives them for the securities it's bought and deposits in the bank. Now what you see is there's an expansion in the banking sector's balance sheet because they now have reserves. They have their old treasury securities. They didn't sell any. They have more reserves. And these are financed by de uh, deposits which are issued to the non-banks. Now, all of this is the one-off based on where the Federal Reserve buys its, its securities from. It turns out this is the way it buys in the QE process rather than the previous, previous chart. But what that means is, at the end of it, commercial banks have issued uninsured demand deposits because typically the pension funds are big. They, they're not uh, you know, guaranteed by the federal deposit insurance, which goes up to 250000 They've issued uninsured demand deposits, and, and the banks have uh, uh, essentially more reserves on their balance sheet. Now, everything could rebalance. It turns out it doesn't. And then, when the Federal Reserve withdraws liquidity from the system, it doesn't seem to be withdrawing this way. It seems to be withdrawing this way. It buys the securities from the banks, or takes the reserves from the bank and sells them back securities, but the demandable claims on the banking system still remain. And so QE and QT work somewhat differently. Net effect is as QT proceeds, the banking system has more and more demandable liabilities outstanding against fewer and fewer reserves that can satisfy those liabilities. The system becomes much more tight or constrained. Think about fractional reserve banking working with less and less reserves or less and less cash. It makes it more fragile. And that's why you find illiquidity episodes increasing as that stuff is withdrawn. That's where I'm going. We'll later talk about what Silicon Valley Bank did to supplement this kind of picture. So QE implies that you get reserves, but you also issue a whole lot of on and off balance sheet demandable claims, uh, either demandable deposits, or interestingly, you will see also banks write credit lines, which are claims on liquidity. So the claims on liquidity expand. When QT happens, they don't shrink, but the reserves shrink. So there are more and more claims against fewer and fewer reserves. The system becomes tighter, which makes the banking system unable to respond to liquidity shocks, such as we saw with LDI or we are seeing uh, with some of the small and medium banks. So essentially what this means is, over time, the banking system becomes more dependent on liquidity than it was before. QE is not a neutral process. There's hysteresis. It ratchets up the demand for liquidity in the banking system, which means when you withdraw that liquidity, you can't go back to the same place you were. It has become dependent on higher levels. And so before you hit that earlier level, the system backs up, and you have to come back into the system. So QT can be an uphill task, and QE can be less effective than we thought. So I'm going to show you this first with some, some pictures. This is reserves as a result of the various QEs that the uh, central bank did in the US. This is QE1, reserves went up. This is QE2, this is QE3. 
And then there's a period when the central bank didn't do much. It just stopped adding to its balance sheet, let stuff run off. That is a period before it officially started QT in late 2017. That's when reserves came down sharply. It proved to be too much. In September 2019, the system seized up again. And so before the pandemic, the Federal Reserve came back into the markets with Q, QE once again. This was a pre-pandemic QE. This is when the pandemic hit and it supplied huge reserves into the system and that goes on. So this is reserves and the various QEs. This is what happens to deposits. Um, you can look at this, deposits are going up. I will show you uninsured deposits, uninsured demand deposits. That's what you want to focus on because that's the runnable claim that we hear, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, 93% of its deposits for uninsured demand deposits. That's where the, the uh, tightness comes. And finally, this is credit lines. These are drawn down, uh, these are undrawn credit lines. What happens uh, initially here is during the global financial crisis, firms are drawing down on their credit lines. Therefore, this is going down, and then they start recontracting, and this starts going up, okay? Now, uh, this is the chart I want to start with to say the claims on liquidity relative to reserves were going up. So what I've got on the y-axis is the multiples of reserves that deposits were. Here I have uh, the, uh, the credit lines. There I have deposits, and I've plotted this on the chart. And what you see is at the time QE started, this ratio was very high. Lots of deposits, uh, lots of credit lines relative to reserves. It wasn't these were huge. It was that reserves were tiny. Before QE started, in 2007, the reserves issued by the Federal Reserve were less than 100 billion. Okay. Then they started expanding hugely. That's why this ratio comes down significantly after the three episodes of QE. Okay. So what you have here is you have demand deposits, you have lines of credit, but they're against uh, a substantial amount of reserves. So the ratio of, of demandable claims to reserves is fairly low. But then, in that interim period when nothing happens, it starts sort of growing because reserves are coming down. And deposits and lines of credit are not coming down. So this ratio starts creeping up. And then you start QT, and this ratio starts skyrocketing. What is this peak? It's 2019 September when the Federal Reserve says, we've taken too much out. And that was at 1.4 trillion of reserves, many multiples of where they started with. The system now had gotten used to a much higher level of reserves. So they start QE again and bring this ratio down. Because we haven't tracked it into 2022, but as QT starts, this starts again uh, moving up. Okay, now I said uh, I would show you deposits. Now let me show you time deposits. Time deposits over this period are steadily coming down. What are time deposits? They are a bank's protection that the money won't run because I have essentially taken some insurance. I have issued deposits which would stay with me, which aren't demandable. So even as they're increasing, uh, you know, overall uh, uh, demand deposits, that's the green line, they're bringing down time deposits. 
as reserves go up. The banks are becoming more fragile, almost voluntarily. This is not mechanical. I sh the first thing I showed you was mechanical. Here it's more than mechanical. They're actively becoming more fragile. Um, what you see here is, uh, when you put it together, uh, focus on demand deposits. Now, initially, in the first, uh, this is the blue line, in the first wave of QE, these came down. Why? Because they changed the definition of demand deposits. They insured much more. Step back a second, these are uninsured demand deposits. Uninsured demand deposits came down because they expanded what was uninsured to a much bigger level. But then, look at QE2, massive increase in uninsured demand deposits. It doesn't come down after that. It stays at the high level. Banks could have rebalanced their uninsured demand deposits. They don't. QE3, again, up. Then, during the period when reserves come down, these don't come down. They stay pretty high. And then, when QE, pandemic QE takes place, again, they take a real big hike. This is the most runnable claim on the planet. I said reserves are the most liquid claim on the planet. Uninsured demand deposits are the most runnable claim on the planet, perhaps made even more runnable by social media and all that talk we hear about Silicon Valley bank depositors talking to each other. So even as you have those very liquid assets, you have very, very runnable liabilities. And you're running down your time deposits. So in a sense, the system is getting more fragile. Let me walk you quickly through what the point in the rest of the paper is. It's substantiating these kinds of results. And the first thing is to say, well, do we see any uh, you know, effect on overall quantities if we, if we run careful regressions? And I'm going to show you yes. That's not going to be our main focus. We're also going to find that the liquidity price reflects both reserves and claims. I'll, I'll come to that. Most important is even if you look at the cross-section of banks. There's so much going on at this time. Um, you know, there's interest rate policy, major macro shocks. So you want to look at the cross-section of banks. And what we show is banks that get more reserves, finance it with more demandable claims, run down their time deposits, and issue more lines of credit. So in a sense, there's a causal relationship. We, we look at the exogenous component of reserves, the causal relationship between the reserves you get, the way you finance it, as well as other claims you write. Now, let me pause a second and just tell you, why is this happening? I mean, it's happening because reserves are a very low-yielding asset. Yes, they're very liquid, but they return nothing. So if I've got a ton of reserves on my balance sheet, I want to finance it in a way that is cheapest. I don't want to issue time deposits. You know, their protection against what? I have liquid reserves sitting there. I will issue demand deposits because they're really cheap. They don't, they, I don't have to pay a lot on those demand deposits. And I'm going to issue lines of credit because I get um, you know, a premium for issuing those lines. Firms pay a commitment fee for the line of credit I offer them. And I know, even in the same way as fractional reserve banking, the guys who want credit lines are going to come and draw them down at the same time as my depositors draw them down. So essentially, I practice fractional reserve banking on a much bigger scale because I have a ton of those reserves. But this makes me prone to those reserves being withdrawn and creating illiquidity in the system. And so the system adjusts, but it adjusts in a way that consumes the liquidity the Federal Reserve is willing to supply 
And when the Federal Reserve withdraws them, it creates problems for the system. That's where we're going. Let me just show you some, some numbers. Uh, I said overall reserves uh, lead to more uh, you know, deposit-like claims, demand deposit-like claims. You can show it in the regressions. That's what we do here. Uh, we don't have time to go through them. There's a paper, take a look at them. But let me just, just tell you what this, these mean. Uh, looking at uh, levels rather than log changes, level changes, what this is saying is every dollar of reserve is financed by one dollar of deposits. Okay. What we have here is reserves. Every dollar of reserves is financed by one dollar of deposits. Okay. But it turns out it is actually financed by $1.3 of demand deposits, and they run down their time deposits by about that amount. So the net is $1, but it turns out you increase the claims to $1.3 of demand deposits and shrink your time deposits by about the difference. You also, as a bank, issue credit lines when you get exogenous reserves, right? So this is, at the aggregate level, what is happening to the banking system. It's getting financed more with demandable claims, less with time claims, and it is issuing lines of credit. Just, just reflecting the kind of aggregate numbers we saw. Now, this is a chart on pricing. Uh, we owe it to Anat Vissing Jorgensen and Lopez Salido uh, for the idea, but we did some, some tweaks on it. But basically, what's going on is, what's the price of reserves in the market? You know, what is the price of liquidity? One measure of the price of liquidity is the effective Fed funds rate minus the interest on reserves. The more the, there is reserves or there's liquidity in the market, the more this difference comes down because you can't really get much for the liquidity you have, okay? So uh, what you should see is that the more reserves you have, the lower the effective funds, uh, Fed funds rate, the more deposits, demand deposits you've issued, the higher the effective Fed funds rate. And you see that in the regressions. But what is interesting is if you run a regression of that difference, which is the price of liquidity, against reserves, there's not much of a direction. But if you correct for demand deposits, or you correct for lines of credit, and then run that regression, it becomes a pretty straight line. So what we're saying is these claims on liquidity are being priced by the market. They subtract liquidity from the liquidity the Federal Reserve has put out. And therefore, when you want to think about liquidity, you can't think just, we had you know, uh, 100 billion of reserves. Now we have 1.5 trillion of reserves. The market must be plentifully supplied. It's not a static market. It responds, and it responds by eating up those reserves by issuing demandable claims, so the net available reserves goes down significantly. And that's what this pricing equation is telling you. What uh, uh, we do after that is to say, look, you know, we've done aggregate time series. Nobody says this is the be all and end all because there's so much else going on. Uh, what we want to show is, you know, in a panel, when you look across banks, you will find the very same aggregate effects also happening across banks, correcting for time effects. That is, banks that get more reserves tend to push down their time deposits 
increase their demand deposits, issue more lines of credit, and you can see it even in the pricing of their deposits. What banks do is, you know, you have time deposits. If you have a bank that has uh, just received a lot of reserves, you push down the interest rate on your time deposits. Why? Because you don't want those time deposits. And so we find that also in the data, that the banks that have more reserves tend to reduce the spread on their time deposits, almost pushing away the time depositors and saying, we don't want your money. We are happy financing this with demandable claims. Okay? One of the things is that, you know, at the end of, of QE, uh, when you move into QT, um, banks don't seem to shrink their, their claims on liquidity. So um, one explanation is, oh, yes, their reserves shrink, but maybe they substitute it with very liquid treasuries, which are, you know, almost near reserves. You can always repo them and get reserves. Of course, they're not quite reserves because they don't uh, allow for ultimate settlement, but they're as near as you get. Maybe that's what's going on. So what we did was we looked, remember that chart I showed you with the claims divided by reserves that was coming down and then went, went up when QT started? We looked at that with including in the denominator treasury securities in addition to reserves. It turned out what's happening is that's not where things are getting better. In fact, as you see in QE1 to 3, the distribution of that ratio tends to be towards the origin. It's low, which is a good thing. There is plenty of liquidity to support the claims on liquidity. But after QE, before QT starts, it starts moving to the right. In other words, these banks, on average, are getting more strength, and there are more banks on the tail that have more claims, even when you divide by the sum of reserves and repoable treasury securities. And then, in QT, it gets worse. And there are a whole bunch of banks that are out on a limb. Now, some of these may be branches of uh, maybe uh, sort of subsidiaries of bank holding companies, so they rely for liquidity on other parts of the bank holding company. But this is not a happy picture. It's saying that there is more stretching for liquidity that goes on as things uh, progress. Now, does this impair system stability? We've told you a story. So what happens when the system gets shocked? Well, we have a shock, which is the COVID shock. What happens to the banks that were out on a limb as far as the ratio of claims divided by the reserves they have goes? It turns out they're the ones that are hit most in terms of the stock price. Their stock price falls significantly when COVID hits relative to the other banks. They're also the banks for whom the drawdowns on credit lines are the highest. Firms don't trust these banks will be able to service their credit lines down the line. They may run out of liquidity. Let me take my credit line down so that I have the money. I'm facing you know, the mother of all shocks, this COVID shock. I don't know when it's going to end. I need liquidity. And so a number of firms just drew down on those credit lines. In fact, some of them went and redeposited in the bank because a demand deposit in the bank is a much stronger claim than a promise of a credit line down the line, okay? So that was the COVID shock. It didn't result in huge failures. Even the demand deposits stayed relatively stable. We see some evidence that those that had issued more demand deposits had a little more 
uh, strain, but it's not a big effect. Why is it not a big effect? Because there's a huge amount of liquidity pumped into the system. There's a huge amount of fiscal funds pumped into the system. Remember, PPP, uh, essentially the federal government gave companies the money to repay their banks. There were no possibility of failures. As important, interest rates were not going up. So during that period, we see, yes, banks that saw their credit lines drawn down had stress. They, uh, their stock price fell, but nothing much else happened. We didn't see the depositor runs that happened more recently. What happened this time around is a combination of effects. We had the massive pandemic QE, which flooded banks with demandable claims. But those banks went around and invested in treasuries you know, some of the, the money they got, some of course went into reserves. But investing in long-term treasuries was not a good idea at this time. Because when uh, the pandemic QE ended and they started raising interest rates and they started QT, you had both problems hitting at the same time. You had a lot of runnable liabilities and you had invested in long-term assets that lost value as interest rates went up. So what you had then was essentially bank runs. Bank runs because these banks were insolvent. Insolvent because they'd invested in long-term treasuries which had lost value. Yeah, it was hidden in their held-to-market portfolios, but the losses were there. But that was not the only problem. The problem was they had financed with tremendous amounts of demand deposits. And those demand deposits started running when they saw there was a problem on the asset side of the balance sheet. So essentially, both problems came together, an asset quality problem and a very volatile liability problem. They came together, especially in the case of Silicon Valley Bank. Let me, let me show you that. For, uh, so this is Silicon Valley Bank. You know, what you see with pandemic QE is that they get an enormous amount of demand deposits, okay? Uh, what we see on the y-axis is the deposits these guys get, and we know 94% was uninsured, so these are all demand deposits uh, of, of, uh, of large quantities. As QT starts, they start losing some of these deposits. This is the run on Silicon Valley Bank, okay? You can see this at the aggregate level also. At the aggregate level, this is QE in the pandemic, and this is the withdrawal of deposits as QT starts, but then obviously the banking system as a whole doesn't suffer a panic. It's a few banks that suffer a panic. And then finally, I want to show you why what's happening now is just an exaggeration of what might have happened when we had QT the previous time, these are the losses on bank treasury portfolios that the FDIC pointed out in, in this period. There's over 600 billion just in the treasury portfolio. Add up all the long-term fixed rate loans they've made, then you get to the 1.5 trillion or so that has to be allocated in the banking system. That happens because interest rates rose. But it also happens because bank balance sheets that had to be invested in these treasuries and other stuff expanded significantly as a result of pandemic QE. The last time this happened was 
when interest rates went up after the Federal Reserve had spent some time basically saying things are going to change and started QT. The losses on bank portfolios are there, but they're much smaller. Now remember, the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates also up to 2018 December. That's where those losses come from, because banks did the same thing, they invested in treasuries. But the losses are much smaller then, because bank portfolios were much smaller than they are now, and because interest rates didn't go up so much as they've gone up now. So in a sense, this was the warning. This was saying, hey, look, things could go off kilter. Then you had QE, and things actually reversed because interest rates, long-term interest rates went down and bank portfolios were healthier. And then you had QT once again, and everything went to hell. So um, let me end here by saying, look, what does all this mean? It basically, I, I think the point you want to take away is you want to be careful about all these new sort of monetary policy actions, that they have unintended consequences that we need to think through. Um, there's very little talk about the effects of QE on bank balance sheets. Uh, it is something that uh, you know, has become more salient over the last few months. And uh, accidents can happen when you have these unintended consequences. And um, essentially, uh, I think uh, what we have to keep in mind is that aggressive monetary policy often lays the ground for future financial sector problems. Going back to Nick's point, Murphy's Law, uh, if anything can go wrong in the financial sector, it will. It will because the financial sector sometimes gets complacent with the nature of monetary policy, takes undue risk in order to eke out a few basis points of returns, and then leaves itself open to what happens when things change. For example, many of the banks that you know, put their treasuries into hold to maturity portfolios essentially acted as if they were fully hedged. They acted as if they didn't have a problem when interest rates go, went up because it was in that portfolio and if the public doesn't see it, it's not a problem, right? It's the ostrich burying its head in the sand. The problem was the public got to know of it and you had financed yourself with highly volatile, demandable claims. That combination essentially took down some of the banks that have failed so far. So the message to some extent is that you can't really separate monetary policy and financial stability to the extent that uh, some of our central banks think uh, is possible. Yes, we have supervisors, but no, supervisors are not infallible and you can't always say, uh, I will do what I'll do on the monetary side and supervisors will take care of the problems on the other side, and of course banks also should take care of the problem, but it's not our problem. Almost always, uh, and this is something that Jose Luis Pedro at Imperial has worked on, uh, you know, banking crises come after a period of easy money and a period of tightening of money. And I think the QE episode is no different from that broader sense. And so, you know, as we ease, as we find new methods of expanding monetary policy, we also have to think about how we get out and the consequences as we get out. They're not always simple, they're not always easy. There were you know, some Federal Reserve people who said, Q 
QT is going to be like watching paint dry. It's going to be completely boring. It turns out it's not boring because there are the unintended consequences of QE. Let me stop there. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you, thank you, Raghu. I mean, not boring is another way of saying be worried. So it was enormously thoughtful, uh, Raghu, and uh, we're very grateful to you for spelling this out so clearly. We now um, have roughly 40 minutes for Q&A. What we'll do is take three questions from the audience and then we'll take three questions online and we'll to and fro, uh, to and fro like that. So can I ask you to raise your hand and then when you're called on for a, to ask your question, you'll get a mic from these splendid people with red shirts. And um, could you please um, give your name and affiliation at the beginning of uh, your question? And could you make it a question and brief and uh, not another talk? Um, so we've had a very good talk. You can't compete with, uh, with that. So I'll, I'll try to look sort of above and below. And there's an, also an LSE tradition of gender balance as well. So I'm going to start uh, in the uh, very back row here, the green, green dress. I hope I've got my colours right. Hi. Um, first of all, it's definitely a privilege to be here, and I will not make it long, as you said. My name is Netika, and uh, I work for an Indian IT company, HCL Technologies. My question is um, with regards to the UK economy and not exactly to the balance sheet. As we all know right now, UK economy is facing a lot of challenges. We keep hearing about cost of living crisis. What do you think, sir? is the primary cause and what could be the simplest solution for this? Thank you very much. And uh, the gentleman in the front row here, please. Hi, my name is Kapil Kapoor and I work for a ID software company, banking software. Um, my question is that the fact that quantitative easing can have unintended impacts is known, you know, it's been done before Germany between the world wars and it caused a lot of impact. So why is it that this was not monitored and maybe mathematically monitored how much quantitative easing to do? Why are we in this position if it was mathematically monitored and was it not mathematically monitored? Thank you. I'll go upstairs now and this person on the edge of the seat just in front of you, it's coming. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Mazhar Mohammad. I'm from Hyderabad, India. I'm studying uh, financial history here at LSE. Now my question is, since 1980s, interest rates are continuously falling, I think for almost 40 years. Now they might have bottomed out uh, uh, in the, around the COVID pandemic. Now, as prices always moves in particular cycles, interest rates 
I feel the downward trending cycle of the interest rates might have over and in that case, do you see that resume change taking place for the interest rates? And if yes, what is going to happen to the world global economy? Because in the global economy, if you look into the, all the G7 countries, the debt to GDP ratio is almost historically at the higher, highest levels. So in the environment of a sustainable interest rate, upward trending interest rates, are we going to see a lost decade kind of thing for a global economy? If yes, then what will happen to all of us who are graduating? <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Well, you'll be better equipped than the rest of them. Um, uh, Raghu, over to you, please. Sure, um, I mean, this is fairly easy because I don't know uh, the answers to some of these questions. On the UK economy, <laughs> Look, uh, I'm an outsider. I can't claim any expertise on what's going on. I think uh, a big concern for the public, of course, is the cost of living increases, and that has affected people asymmetrically because uh, poorer people spend more on food, and food prices have, uh, have gone significantly up. There have been some supports to energy prices and so on. But yes, that is a big concern. I think the broader concern is the low productivity growth over the last, you know, so many years. How can that be ramped up? But I think as with every country, there are also tremendous sources of optimism. The kind of energy uh, intellect in places like this, in Cambridge, in Oxford, the kind of triangle and the kind of innovation that is possible there, biotech, um, artificial intelligence. Uh, this is a country that has enormous capabilities also. So I think the future can, of course, be very bright. Uh, but there are current challenges in which need to be dealt with. But I, I can't say I'm an expert in any which way on, on those. Uh, on QE, uh, you know, QE in its current form is, I, I'm not sure the kind of expansion in bank balance sheets we've seen was practiced earlier. I mean, the uh, Bank of Japan did a little bit of it, uh, but really, the simultaneous expansion that we've seen across the UK, the Euro area, uh, the, the ECB, and the Federal Reserve um, has not really been experienced to this extent be before. Um, I do think that, you know, sometimes you have to look at data that people don't look at to see some of what, what is happening. Um, you know, Biral, who's my co-author, and I wrote a theory paper. And we said, this theory would suggest some of these things should be happening. Let's go look at the data. And we were pleasantly surprised to find that there was something in the data also. And then, you know, uh, last August, we, uh, we presented it at the Federal Reserve Conference. And I have to say, some senior Fed people didn't know this was going on. At least that was my take from my conversations with them. So it's not always obvious that, uh, you know, I mean, you can always say it's not a big deal. I'm sure a whole bunch of central bankers say, will say it's not a big deal. But uh, I think to, you know, look at the details is important. Um, you know, interest rates, I think Charles is the best position to answer that question. He's written a whole book on where real interest rates might go over time, what the mix of savings and investment might be looking forward. And, and really, it's, it's complicated, right? The uh, IMF recently came out with an article basically saying, 
real interest rates will go back to the uh, pre-pandemic low level. Uh, you know, there are offsetting forces, but they will go back. I mean, some of the forces are, are longer term, the forces of demographics, uh, the forces of productivity, which we haven't seen a whole lot of. Uh, and Charles has written in a lot of ways about it, uh, you know, challenging the received wisdom. Uh, but there are also, what we see now is force of deglobalization that on the one hand reduce the productivity of capital, which should tend to push down uh, long-term interest rates because they make investment less worthwhile, but they also may make uh, global capital less mobile. Uh, you, you, you see uh, you know, central banks elsewhere buying gold, uh, not buying uh, you know, treasuries in other countries, uh, but this may presage its kind of restriction on cross-border capital flows that we haven't seen so far. That would increase the cost of capital in different countries. It's, it's, it's really complicated. So, uh, you know, are we going to see much higher real interest rates? The IMF doesn't think so. They make some reasonable arguments for that. I think you could start a debate in this room if you ask that question. Will you be poor? No. Uh, I mean, Make me the techno-optimist. I always think technology moves forward. There is a scope for us to be much richer using the various technologies, but we have to be wise in using them. And that's really your challenge. Will you be wise? Will your generation be wise in using all that we have? Thank you very much, Raghu. I can't help but add to add that we actually have now in front of us a whole range of enormously attractive investment opportunities in transforming uh, energy systems, uh, the way our cities function, land use, and uh, so on. And we live in a world where planned savings is in excess of planned investment. But if you put those two observations together, uh, the challenge is surely to uh, find ways to encourage those really attractive investment opportunities, which we, which we can identify and uh, see. And that, in turn, needs a, a clear uh, strategy of public and private uh, investment. The public side, you can actually do as decision. But the private side, which would be encouraged by the public side, would have to be in terms of confidence in the right kinds of policies and stability in the right kinds of policies going uh, forward. But that shouldn't be beyond us. So I was a bit discouraged to see that whilst, uh, you know, Kristalina Georgieva and Christine Lagarde encouraging us to follow this new line of development, rightly so, much more attractive than the dirty, destructive models of the past. But then to, you have to recognize that that needs very strong encouragement of investment and that takes you out of your problem of planned saving being uh, too high in relation to planned investment. So it's our fault, really. I mean, I think in large measure it's in our hands. Anyway, you'd expect that. Right. Well, I mean, what me, Nick yeah. is saying is there are ways that you can increase sort of both. Uh, if you can reduce the wedge between savings that are looking for a home and uh, the investment opportunities that lie around the world, and then, you know, uh, it can be beneficial. And you may see a, uh, you may or may not, even in that case, see a rise in real interest rates because you've got more savings being put to work, uh, but you have more investment also coming up. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, but it's, it's good in the sense that it enhances growth 
and also saves our planet, which is something that uh, obviously both, both are good, Nick yeah. Is, yeah. is very focused on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now we go to our online friends. Um, so could you read out three questions, please? You can tell us your name as well. Uh, my name is Ulrike, um, and I will read out three questions from the online audience. Thank you, Ulrike. Um, the first one is by uh, Carlos Francisco Suarez Doriga. What does Professor Rajan think about the movement of funds from U.S. banks to U.S. money markets, funds that pay a much higher interest rate? What could happen if this became a structural event? The second question is by Eva Malter, who's a PhD candidate uh, in Rotterdam. What role does moral hazard play in the current banking turmoil and in the previous build-up of uninsured demandable deposits? Implicit government guarantees could have influenced bank behavior. Is there a way to address the excessive risk-taking of banks? Um, the third question is by Malavika Devaya. Reflecting back on your time as the governor of the Reserve Bank of India, what would you say are the most important qualities of a central banker? <laughs> uh, just quickly on those three. Yes, uh, we did see in, in March, uh, and I haven't seen the April numbers, but we saw a movement away from the banks towards the money market funds. Uh, one piece of evidence suggesting this is the reverse repo transactions, which is money market funds putting uh, reserves back to the Fed, increased by about $300 billion. So that suggested they had uh, uh, received a substantial flow of money. Um, what's obviously banks will do is they will start paying higher interest rates on their, deposit, on their deposits to offset this kind of incentive. But, you know, to some extent that creates a problem for the banks. Uh, one of the things that we didn't get into, but uh, the belief was that banks had deposits with a low beta. What does that mean? As the Fed raises interest rates, the banks don't raise deposit rates because they've got sleepy depositors who really don't care what they paid on their deposits. That was the theory. Therefore, you could invest in these long-term securities. So long as you pretended they were held to maturity, no problem. You can finance them because your sleepy depositors don't demand anything more than half a percentage point on their deposits, and you've lent out at 2 or 3%. Even if market interest rates go up, you're still safe. Turns out that those sleepy depositors tend to wake up. Uh, actually, they were never asleep if they were, you know, uninsured demand depositors because they were looking for the highest return on their money. But if they are also uh, looking at the newspaper and they find, hey, money markets are paying 5% and our bank is somewhat risky, well, you start demanding compensation for that. And that, to some extent, is part of what's going on. Which then means that a First Republic bank, which had, you know, it hadn't really uh, got as much in demandable deposits as uh, Silicon Valley Bank, but it had this problem, which it had invested in long-term treasuries and long-term mortgages to people like Mark Zuckerberg, but at very low interest rates. So safe mortgages, except they were also guaranteed to lose money as interest rates went up if you paid that high interest rate on your deposits. And as Silicon Valley Bank found its depositors repricing and found that it had to borrow from Federal Reserve at 5%, it turned out that it was essentially decapitalized also. So yes, that's a problem. And that's this time around. I mean, it goes back to Charles' regularity, right? People thought deposit beta was a new innovation. 
But once you started taking advantage of deposit betas, at least at the banking level, it turned out those betas aren't fixed. They tend to move. And especially when you've taken a lot of advantage of them, uh, they tend to move more rapidly. Um, moral hazard? Absolutely. And, and this is a problem because every time you say moral hazard, the regulators, the uh, fiscal authorities say, now's not the time to think about moral hazard. Let's just bail out the system. We'll think about moral hazard the next time around. Never happens. When's the time to think about moral hazard? Not when the system is recovering. Not when the system is in crisis. Um, when? Uh, rarely. And every time you ratchet up the stakes, because everybody knows, oh, this time around, at the, you know, at the first sign of trouble, they bailed out all the uninsured depositors. That's going to happen again. So why do I care about the risk of my bank so long as I know that it's big enough, important enough to not fail? Uh, I go uninsured, but instead of, you know, doing the things that protect me or looking at the quality of the bank, I don't worry about it. Now, this seems like a theoretical argument, but we see increasingly, you know, banks are making the same kinds of mistakes that they made in the past. It's not even new mistakes. I mean, this. Uh, maturity mismatch is a well-known problem in banking. Every emerging market sends its supervisors to check what your duration risk is, what your asset liability mismatch is on, uh, on duration. Didn't happen this time. And we have a whole bunch of banks. If it were not for that problem across the banking system, Silicon Valley Bank would have been let go without a problem. But it's this worry that it's the tip of the iceberg. Many more banks have done the same thing. And then you have to ask, what prompted that incentive in the banks? It seems like a common incentive. That goes back to the point of moral hazard. And what were the supervisors doing sleeping on the job? I think the Fed has a pretty strong mea culpa out. But we need to see action. And we need to start penalizing investors who take advantage of this. What would have been the problem if you had let Silicon Valley Bank down, go under? You know, maybe some of those depositors would have lost 10%. You, you could have bailed out the second and the third bank in the system. Why bail the first bank out? At the first sign of trouble, you intervene. Some sort of sense that panic will expand. Well, there is this slow-burning panic anyway. You haven't dealt with that because there is a real solvency problem. It's not just a liquidity problem. So you haven't dealt with the ultimate problem but you have created more moral hazard. It's not the best of words. Uh, central banker? I, I'll punt on that question. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the best qualities of central banker are. Probably, um, you know, you should look wise, you should look... Uh, um, <laughs> and I, I think from all our collective experiences, probably we shouldn't talk too much. <laughs> I might add, find a good role model, uh, Raghu. Next round from the audience. I'll, I'll start uh, upstairs. There's a red lady in a red. Um... Thank you. Uh, I'm Teresa Cascino from City. Um, wanted to ask, uh, what I did understand is why the banks didn't lend during those periods in which they were floating with, were given a lot of liquidity. Yeah. I just don't understand why they there hasn't lend. been growth demand um, led by investments, so to the banks could lend and make money out yeah. of it, rather yeah. than instead investing yeah. in uh, reserves. Yeah. So. Thank you. And a gentleman just there in the um, 
back row. Um, thank you, Dr. Rajan. It's an honor uh, listening to you. My name is Harneet, and I'm an MSc economics student at the LSE. Uh, my question is, how do you think uh, international banking regulations like the Basel III Accord can actually help reduce the size of bank balance sheets and deal with these kind of unintended consequences even before quantitative tapering is started? Okay, and uh, gentleman on the corner here. Thanks, Raghu, and congratulations on your honorary doctorate. I'm Lan Roy from FMG, uh, LSE. Uh, Raghu, uh, there have been internal papers by the Fed assessing QE and in four, uh, four stories of quantitative easing, people from the St. Louis Fed said that the common feature of QE success across four different countries has typically been financial stability rather than output and price stability. So in other words, your putting another nail in the coffin saying that QE, even for financial stability, hasn't been that successful. And does this have to do with what um, Jay Powell calls plumbing issues in the repo market and also during the swap lines that we've not understood the market microstructure changes of the financial markets that well? Thanks, Amlan. Um, so uh, why did banks not lend? Um, I'm not sure you would have been more comfortable if they'd lent at the pace at which they got funds, right? So, so one of the worries, I mean, we've seen this happen before. When, when banks get a lot of money and they don't quite know what to do with it and they lend it, uh, we saw it during the petrodollar crisis in the 70s. They went and lent it to Latin American countries and caused the Latin American debt crisis there. Uh, even in the run-up to the uh, global financial crisis, we saw that you know, banks that got a lot of deposits didn't make great loans with them. So what we have here with pandemic QE is there's a fire hose of deposits coming into the banks. If they lent that money, they would have made far greater losses because they wouldn't have had the time to do due diligence. Here's a bank which is getting something like you know, 10, 15% of its deposit base every quarter. Uh, you don't have the ability to do due diligence at that rate. So it's good that they invested in treasuries. Even better if they invested in short-term treasuries rather than long-term treasuries. That's where they were eking out that little bit. Oh, the Federal Reserve told us interest rates aren't going to go up. Therefore, well, we can do this. That was their excuse. But, but it, there was clearly a search for yield going on. You've got 100 billion over the last four quarters, and you put it at 100 basis points more, that's $1 billion in extra profits that you can distribute as bonuses. You know, it, it does matter. And so I think that uh, there was a little bit of myopia there. Uh, on Basel III, I, it's not so much that it would have changed the size of the balance sheet. I think it would have forced uh, you know, some of the regulatory measures that were put in place more observed in the UK and, and, and the Euro area than in the US. And I, I think we still need to get to the bottom of why it wasn't observed in the US. May have forced banks to recognize some of the duration mismatches. I mean, I was talking to a bank CEO the other day. He says, you know, this is unconscionable. Wouldn't happen in my bank. We constantly monitor this. And it's true of the large US banks also. They constantly monitor their duration risk. Because there's one large bank, Bank of America, which has substantial losses on its securities portfolios. 
but the other large banks have been much better off. So there is a supervisory question that needs to be asked, what happened here? Uh, papers by the Q. Look, uh, one of the things I want to emphasize is we've looked at just one system, the Federal Reserve. We haven't looked at what's happened in the other countries, and they may have different experiences. Uh, when the Bank of Israel governor, who's a finance uh, guy like me, went back to Israel, he said, this is what's happening in our country also, which was, which was interesting. But first, it need not follow the same pattern, and second, it need not always result in big problems. I think the big problems right now is as much from what they did with the cash that they got investing in long-term securities as it is with the fact that the deposits were runnable. So it's that toxic mix which has been really problematic this time. It wasn't as problematic when, when COVID hit. Uh, there were other you know, problems. But what we were warning of is fragility in the system. And the fragility needs a shock to set it off. The interest rate shock was what set it off now. And it's one reason why Federal Reserve you know, people on the Open Market Committee are basically saying, you know, are we doing too much on interest rates? Because more interest rates makes a more fragile system even more fragile. In other words, for the first time in a long time, we're seeing monetary policy collide with financial stability concerns. And you may stop raising interest rates before the time necessary to control inflation simply because you worried more interest rate hikes will actually make these banks more fragile. So it's a, it's a really difficult combination, and it suggests that we can't let our eyes go off the financial stability board. Thank you very much, uh, Raghu. Now we go back to online, Ulrika. I'm afraid there haven't been any more questions from the online audience at the moment. Okay, so the bonus is uh, in here. The gentleman right at the back there, just next to you, that's it. Uh, hello, my name's Tim Nibbins. I'm a LSA alumni. I was wondering, um, are you concerned that the central banks are needing to step in so much and become a backstop to the financial system, and it seems as if their role is getting larger and larger rather than smaller, and do you see that as a major concern going forward? Thank you. Um, the gentleman right at the back there, right at the far back. Hi, I'm uh, Ramin from UCL Economics. Just a clarification question. You mentioned that there's a third party involved in quantitative easing, the pension funds. And when the Fed buys, uh, let's say, assets from them, this ends up indirectly expanding the deposits in the banking sector. Would you be able to explain that causal chain again, please? Just here in the second row, the top. Hi, uh, my name is Modit Kumbhat. I work with UBS as part of the liquidity reporting team. So my question is around uh, Silicon Valley Bank. So day in, day out, we provide so many data to central banks. There are liquidity ratios. I mean, like it's it's hundred percent is the bare minimum limit. Then there are internal limits as well. And on top of that, we do daily, weekly, monthly reports. And there are like internal liquidity risk teams. And so much data is provided to the central bank. So who do you think like the collapse, I mean, or the liability lies with? Is it the bank? Is it the central bank, the government? Or, or like more tighter regulations are required, like to monitor such kind of crisis? Yeah, let, let me start with that. Um, I think the Fed uh, has already put out a document, which is actually worth reading for all your students who are interested in, in, in banking 
it goes into the details of supervision, how many times the Silicon Valley Bank, you know, was warned, what, what kinds of things it did, you know. And I think it's, it's like everything going wrong. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank knows it's taking risks. It finds it's exceeding the limits of its models. So it changes the model. It doesn't reduce the risk. Uh, you find that the supervisors recognize there's a problem going on, but they don't tell the Silicon Valley Bank you should fix it by thus and such date, otherwise we will impose huge penalties. It's sort of a little bit lackadaisical, uh, the supervision. There are also multiple teams which go in and, uh, you know, basically has a, here's a problem that anybody should have recognized, but is papered over and is allowed to fester, and then it explodes. And, you know, I mean, in the background, you have to ask yourself, were these guys really so well connected that somehow we didn't have the conversation that had to be had because they seemed, uh, you know, smooth and there was a fear that you would present. I don't think that's necessarily the biggest issue, but somehow that conversation, that brutal conversation which supervisors have with the bank did not take place. And as you said, most banks do this as a, as a daily thing. And this is a $250 billion bank, which seemed to you know, do it on the back of an envelope. Uh, seem. Uh, as I said, they had models, but they uh, chose to ignore them. Um, on the pension funds and the buying, I mean, uh, that's just a mechanical thing that I was talking about. If the Federal Reserve buys uh, bonds from the pension fund, it pays the pension fund. Think of it as paying the pension fund a check. The pension fund gets nothing from keeping that check. It goes and deposits the check in its bank, so it gets a demand deposit against the bank because these are large deposits and it's putting it in its checking account. The bank, when it gives the check to the Federal Reserve, will transfer reserves into its account. And so the net effect is the bank balance sheet has gone up by deposits issued to the pension fund to the amount of securities that the Federal Reserve bought and the uh, bank has an equal amount of reserves, okay? Um, the first question, you know, are central banks becoming more central? Unfortunately, yes. And uh, I wrote a piece in the IMF Finance and Development basically saying for central banks, less is more. That was also the title. But I really wanted to say central banks are going into all sorts of places, altering all sorts of asset prices, intervening in all sorts of ways, which, you know, they think they can back off from. But it's creating distortions in the system, and we, as we saw in this particular situation, very hard to back out of. Uh, Nick will know the term chakra view in, uh, in Hindi, which is a whirlpool. And once you get into the whirlpool, it seems it's very easy to get in, it's very hard to get out. And that seems to be the nature of central bank activities. We're touching so many things, say we as if I'm still a central banker, but <laughs> central banking community is still is touching so many things, has offered so many implicit uh, and explicit guarantees, is, is affecting so many asset prices. You know, it's amazing how much we've gotten used to. 20 years ago, we would not think any of this was tolerable. These are the kinds of practices emerging market banks, central banks used to do and got away from. And now it is de rigueur in many industrial country central banks. So I think we need to have a debate again about this. Is all this intervention really good? And has it created seeds of, of more problems?
you, do you see a pathway where the financial markets will give way to I think we should start trying. I think we should start trying. Unfortunately, from where we are, I would say don't try doing too many things at the same time. So my counsel was always, over the last year, we need to raise interest rates, but don't try doing QT at the same time, because it could create more problems in the system. Turns out we did have problems. Uh, Ulrika, any more from online? There have been two more questions from the online audience. Um, first question, if QT could focus on purchases from the non-bank sector that would reduce demandable deposits from the commercial banks, is that A, possible, and B, desirable? The second question is from Martin Norris in the USA. What would have happened if SVB had not been bailed out? Okay, um, first question, QT... Um you know, I, I was trying to explain uh, to the gentleman there that it's precisely when it, uh, QE happens with the banks that we get the expansion. The question is, uh, well, if you do QT with the non-banks, do you see a, a contraction? Uh, perhaps. I mean, the broader question is, why don't banks rebalance their balance sheet when any of this happens? Why are they sitting with the balance sheet that they got? And that's, that's a question I don't have a quick answer to. It just seems to me that if you've issued a line of credit, it's very hard to withdraw it saying the central bank has reduced reserves because the line of credit is now going to support longer-term borrowing that you've done from, say, the leveraged loan market. They require a line of credit because you may run into liquidity problems. So you can't go to your relationship customer and say, look, hey, I, I need to withdraw that line of credit now because uh, the Federal Reserve has shrunk uh, reserves. Uh, there seems to be a kind of hysteresis in bank behavior, and it may have to do with customers uh, rather than necessarily the banks looking at their own balance sheet. That doesn't, it's not a full answer, it's not a satisfactory answer. Uh, I think the quick answer is I don't really know, and it's worth investigating. Um, SVB bailout, what if SVB hadn't been bailout? Yes, this is the question that we'll all ask forever, right? You know, uh, one set of people will say all hell would have broken loose in the banking system. We'd have had uh, deposit runs across the system. Uh, I, you know, think that perhaps one could have brought in that blanket guarantee. Remember, Janet Yellen went back and forth on whether the uninsured deposits were going to be guaranteed. She could have said they're all, you know, we're going to guarantee them for a little while till the system comes down after putting the uninsured depositors in Silicon Valley Bank in receivership. Some people, some theorists, I mean, this is at the back of my mind because some theorists have suggested maybe that's the how, way we should deal with these problems to reduce moral hazard. The first bank doesn't get bailed out because at least that means that everybody has some risk of going. I mean, yeah, I know that uh, this is a probabilistic thing. More broadly, I think we've led the system to such a point that liquidity will always be available. Now solvency, insolvency is not a problem that uh, you, know, you don't have to watch for the quality of the person you're lending to. I think the more you take these risks out of the system, the more they show up in other ways. And that's, that's really what we're seeing. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take uh, one last question, uh, lady there in the black sweater. Then we're going to have to finish up. I'm really sorry that we can't go on, because there's so many questions. I'm sure they'll be very good. But uh, last question, please. Um, hello, sir. It's an absolute privilege to be in, in the same room as you. 
My name is Sanya and I'm currently working as an RA at the University of Cambridge. My key area of research is central bank digital currencies. And along those lines, some experts have claimed that issuing central bank digital currencies could perhaps help us effectively manage liquidity and maybe even reduce the need for balance sheet expansion. So I want to ask how realistic is that possibility and what are the benefits and the drawbacks of this approach? I don't know what the people you're talking about are, are thinking of when they say it will be a better way to manage liquidity. I mean, what is happening with uh, balance sheet expansion is you're, in a sense, trying to take duration out of the private sector system and l forcing the private sector system to look for duration. What we're saying is, you no, know, that's not exactly what's happening. What is, what is happening is the banks are offsetting your taking duration out by essentially uh, shrinking their uh, duration of their liabilities and it's offsetting some of what you intend. But that's, that's a long-winded way of saying, I don't know how central bank digital currencies would get at that problem. I mean, to some extent, central bank digital currencies are like crypto uh, currencies. Uh, both looking for a use case, which, uh, uh, which makes sense, right? Um, a lot of what central bank digital currencies are trying to do can be done through fast payment systems. And that's what the Fed is, is thinking of. Fed now is coming in this year. In India, we did UPI in 2016. Nine billion transactions last month. Your street vendor, which Nick is familiar with, is now selling via UPI. So, you know, why do you need uh, digital currency over and above that, especially at the retail level. Wholesale level, we, we're really virtually there. Yes, we're not there for cross-border transactions, but there's a lot of transacting done with central bank accounts. And so in that sense, do we really need a wholesale digital currency? It may increase efficiency of the margin. The real talk is about the retail digital currency. And there we really need more uh, sort of use cases which use the power of the digital currency, smart, smart contracts and things like that. Until we get that, it's, it's really a technology looking for a use. And uh, you know, maybe experiment with it, maybe be part of the standard setting. But unless you want to crowd out other forms of fast payments, uh, including UPI, including you know, credit cards and so on, uh, I think uh, I don't see a big use case. Thank you, Raghu. And it, it is amazing. I mean, you just buy a, uh, a cup of tea or a samosa or something on the street and you just wave your phone and that's it. And so you do ask yourself, well, what's, what's the point of a, a digital currency? Um, but you have to have somewhere that's um, efficient uh, as India for that to, that to be true. Um, it remains for us to thank you, Raghu. Um, I'll just say one or two things before you'll give him a huge round of applause. Um, first is that um, there is, for those of you who have been invited, and I think you know who you are, um, there is a, a reception, a glass of something on this ground floor, and you'll be directed on the way out or just after, just after you've gone out. Um, the second is that there will be one or two photos um, taken with Raghu and myself, uh, including with the sponsors. Again, I think you know who you are. And that will be up here. So those of you who are going to come for the photos, please make your way to, uh, to the stage. But most importantly, Raghu, it's really been a treat to have you uh, with us. 
Uh, a lot of this stuff is really complicated and there's lots of analytical material that lies underneath. But you made it all so uh, accessible and clear. Uh, it was just a treat to uh, be with you. So now that you are uh, an LSE uh, PhD, uh, which of course you earned with flying colours, um, do, do please spend time with us. You know you're very welcome. And uh, Radhika, also please regard yourself as part of the uh, family. Charles, uh, it's always a pleasure to... Uh, we don't get many chances to honour you, but this is also a chance to honour you as the Charles Goodhart Lecture. Thank you again to PGIM for supporting us in all this. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.